Thank you, Gifford. Good morning, everyone. My name is Stuart Mazell. I'm the pastor here. It's great to see all of you here today. We have been going through a series on identity, but today we are pressing pause on that in order to do a one-shot sermon on um, baptism. And I forgot to mention, if you have children who are going to uh, junior church, you may be dismissed at this time. They will be brought back in after the sermon. All right, so where was I? Oh yeah, baptism, baptism. So yeah, we're gonna do a a sermon on baptism today. And if you're wondering, well, why why are we pressing the pause button on identity series and talking about baptism? Well, there's a couple of reasons, several reasons actually. One, we're doing some baptisms today, right after the end of this sermon. And so thought it would be a good opportunity for us to talk about that. Uh, Second, I realized in preparing for this service that I haven't done an in-depth Uh, discussion, talk, sermon, whatever about baptism for a long time. And so I thought it's it's probably a good idea for us to rehearse this one more time because it's good for us to remember why we do what we do. And then third, the the number one reason why um, what that people come here and then they have questions. The number one question, I'm sorry, that they bring to the table when they come from other churches and when they come from the community and come in, it's not about predestination, sovereignty of God, which is what Presbyterians are kind of known for. It's about baptism. I get more questions about baptism and more people kind of come in and go out because of baptism than any other thing. So it's a good reason for us to just take a time, take some time and and look at Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we do what we do? So that not only if you are a guest with us today, that you will hear why we're doing what we're doing, especially if it's different than what your experience is, but also even if you are a longtime member, just to one more time get that really sunk into your heads that this is what baptism is really about and why we believe what we believe. So if you like to follow along in the scriptures, you can either look at the screen or you can follow along in your own Bible. We're going to look at two main passages, but we'll be looking at some others along the way. The first is from Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Uh, This is God's word. Uh, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant 
to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And our next passage comes from the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39, and here's what God's Word says there. Now, when they, this is the people who were gathered around Peter as he was preaching the first, the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now, when they, the crowds, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Let me pray for us. Um, Lord, we are thankful for your word. Please, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things, wonderful truth, your goodness to us in Christ. Give us what we really need today, and let this not just be a, a message that gives some information about why we do what we do, but be at work in this to produce faith in those who do not believe, to strengthen faith of those who do, and most of all, to lift our eyes to Jesus and to fix our eyes on him and to see his beauty and his wonder and his goodness that we would rejoice in him. And it is in his name that we pray this. Amen. For uh, those of you who don't know, I, I grew up... Um, in eastern North Carolina in a small town called Colerain. I know everyone has heard of the booming metropolis of Colerain because at, according to the interwebs, the uh, current population of Colerain is somewhere between 170 and 300. That's not 1,000, 170 to 300 people. And technically, when I was raised, I, I lived in the suburbs of Colerain. In other words, the sticks. Um, and my parents were um, Southern Baptists. And I was raised Southern Baptist. And uh, we were members of Elm Grove Baptist Church, a little small, small little church that's probably about half the size of this area over here. Uh, and we... We were faithful in attendance. We went to Sunday school every Sunday. We went to Sunday morning worship service every Sunday. And they called that preaching. Not worship service, but preaching. Um, I don't know what all the other stuff that we did was, but the service was called preaching. And uh, we went to Sunday evening services and Wednesday evening services. Basically, if the door was open and I could be there, I was there. And uh, because we were, I was such a faithful attender of this Southern Baptist Church, I heard a good bit of teaching on baptism because that's what Baptist churches do. They teach about baptism a lot. And that's a good thing, right? Um, and I was taught that baptism is practiced only by immersion. That is, you take the person and you put them all the way under. Not one part of them should be dry. And then I was also taught 
that only people who make a profession of faith should be baptized. And um, because the only people I knew well growing up were either Baptists, Pentecostals, or non-Christians, I didn't know anyone who thought any differently. I really didn't. And as far as I knew, the only people who baptized babies by sprinkling or pouring were Roman Catholics. And for some reason, in my mind, and I I hate saying it this way, but this is true, when in my young mind, Roman Catholics were just a few notches above Satanists. I mean, just a few notches. And I'm not sure why I thought that. Nobody taught me that. It was just in my mind. Now, as a college student, one of my friends invited me to a Presbyterian church. I, I didn't know anything about Presbyterians. In fact, I, I, I didn't even know what a Presbyterian was. I didn't even know if I knew a Presbyterian. But I went to this Presbyterian church, and it was in Christ Presbyterian Church under the leadership of Carl Brannon that I actually saw a baby being baptized for the first time. Not being immersed, but just having a little water sprinkled on his head. And let me tell you, my reaction to that was not favorable. It was not. In fact, I wanted to stand up and yell, you can't do that. That's wrong. Where do you think you're getting off doing something like that? And now, thankfully, I did not do that and cause a disruption in the worship service. But it is what I wanted to do. So what happened? How did a guy like that, a guy who grew up the way that I did, a guy who felt as strongly as I did about baptism being done this particular way, how did that guy become a Presbyterian pastor who has had all of his children baptized as babies, not by immersion, but by sprinkling or pouring? How did that happen? It's a long story. I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but I, will want, I do want to walk you through what changed my mind. Now let me say, I know that in a crowd like this, there are probably people who are going to disagree with the stuff that I'm going to say today. And I understand that. I do. And as you'll hear at the end of the sermon, there are some more important things than how we practice baptism. So I don't want to make a bigger deal out of this than I should, but I do want you to understand why we do what we do, how we come at the scriptures, and how we apply the scriptures to why we do what we do. It's not just a tradition. We really do believe the scriptures teach and move us in this direction. So buckle up, and here we go. The first thing that I would say about baptism is that baptism is best understood in the context of God's covenant. See, a lot of people, when they start with baptism, they start with John the Baptist, which makes sense because that's the first time you see someone being baptized in Scripture. But I think you have to read the Scriptures as a whole and understand the Scriptures as a whole to really get what baptism is really about. Now, and and I think that that best understanding comes from the context of God's covenant. Now, years ago, when the Mazels lived in the Foxcroft subdivision right across from um, Sumter High School, we had a neighborhood covenant. And, and there were a lot of rules and regulations that we had to follow. And um, if you stepped out of line on those covenant rules, 
Um, there was a guy who drove around our neighborhood. I'm, I'm not making this up. This is literally true. He drove around our neighborhood looking for violations, and if he saw one, he would write you a letter and tell you what your violation was. I got at least three or four of those. My, my absolute favorite story about that subdivision is one of my neighbors got a, got a, um, a notice in the mail saying that his his mailbox was not plumb, meaning it wasn't like level, and he went out and painted it purple. <laughs> but if you've ever been in a subdivision like that with a covenant like that, when you hear the word covenant, you might have a bad taste in your mouth. You might be thinking, ugh. Rules and regulations. That's all we're talking about here. But, but no, no, no. The basic gist of a covenant is a type of relationship. And in, in Scripture, what a covenant is, is when God enters into a relationship with us. And he says that he is establishing this covenant with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. That's the big gist of what a covenant is about. And he guarantees this relationship and he gives us promises. And yes, there are responsibilities on our part. Yes, I don't, I don't want to downplay that. But the emphasis really is on God enters into a relationship with us and he gives us promises. And it's because of that that we do what we do. So that's the first part of this puzzle of baptism. The best way I think to understand Baptism is in the context of a covenant. And if you look at the covenants throughout Scripture, you'll see that every covenant, every covenant that God has made with people, every one, every covenant includes their children. Every single one. You, you, you search high and low, and you will not find a covenant that does not include children in the Scriptures. Um, when... Some of you know that my, I have a sister, and my sister is 12 years older than me. I joke that sometimes my, my parents had this idea that, you know, they would start with her, wait till she was 12, and then have me, so they have automatic babysitter. That's not what they did, but it did work out that way many times. And there were lots of times where she would invite people over to the house, and they would play board games. And one of the biggest frustrations of me growing up with a 12-year-old, 12-year-older-than-me uh, sister was that she would be playing board games with her friends, and I would come up and i say, can I play that game? And she would pick up the box, and she would point to it and say, see, it says, for ages 10 and up, you're not 10, you can't play this game. And she did that all the time. So frustrating. I was excluded from playing the game, from being involved, and I felt terrible about that. And she kept doing it because she said, you're too young for this. Thank God that is not the way he deals with us. That you can be too young to be included in God's promises. That's just not the way God works. In his covenant, he includes the children. He doesn't just care about individuals. 
He cares about families. He doesn't just care about adults. He cares about children, little children as well. That's why Jesus said, let the children come to me. Because it's not just about people of a certain age and older. It's about all of us. And let me, let me show you this, just in case you're like, well, where are you getting this from Scripture, Stuart? Let me show you just a real quick walkthrough, and this is going to be very fast. Genesis 6, 18. God made a covenant with Noah. Who was the covenant with? I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, Noah was the main person, but it wasn't just for him. It was for his whole family. In Genesis 17, 7, which we read earlier today, God made a covenant with Abraham. And what, well, what was that covenant about? I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, your children, after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring. God made a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 12, 28, he says, Be careful to obey all the words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And then God made a covenant with David, and we read about that in various places, but in Psalm 132 we read, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, and if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. In other words... God was including not just David as king, but all of his sons after him. He was including children of David in the covenant. And so when Jesus established the new covenant through his life and death and resurrection, we would expect to hear the language of it's not just for you, but also for your children. Right? And is that what we actually see in the New Testament? We do. Acts chapter 2. Now when they, the crowd, in Acts chapter 2, now when they, the crowd, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They had heard Peter's message and they were cut to the heart. They said, okay, what do we do about this? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you, period, right? That's what it says. No, that's not what it says, is it? For the promise is for you and for your children. And then he doubles down and says even more, and not just for you Jews, not just for the people who are in this particular area, it's also for people outside of what you would normally think of God's people. This is a promise that goes throughout the entire world to anyone who will believe. This promise is for them and for their children and for people afar off. And this... This fact that in, in God's way of doing things, in the covenant, everybody, uh, everybody who is in the covenant, their children are included. This is why. This is the point. This is why we apply the sign of the new covenant to the children of believers. This is why we do it. Because God includes children as part of the covenant community. Now, if you look back at the 
first covenant that we, the covenant with Abraham that we looked at earlier in chapter 17 of Genesis. I, I didn't read this part, but I, I do want to see, let you see the next part. So God makes this covenant with Abraham, and he says, this is the covenant will be for you and for your children after you. And then he says, this is my covenant, verse 10, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not uh, of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Okay, so what we see in this passage is that Abraham was told not only to apply the sign of the covenant to himself, but he was also told to do that for his, his children. And, and, and look at, at what he says. He says, not, not wait until they believe and then do it. No, he says, even when they're eight days old. I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I've had three kids, and at eight days old, they're not believing much of anything. They're just crying and sleeping and eating. That's pretty much it. That's all they got on their mind. And yet, God says, mark them with this sign, the sign of the covenant, the sign that says, I am a God who wants to be their God, and I want them to be my people. And so they're marked with a sign, and they belong to the covenant community, and they were called to embrace that reality as they grew up. But maybe you're thinking, well, wait a second, Stuart. If I, were, if I, if I read the scriptures before, and I think I remember something about circumcision isn't really like required of you know, New Testament Christians, as sometimes we call ourselves. So where do you get this? Well, circumcision isn't the sign of the new covenant. Now, baptism is a sign of the new covenant. And so you may be saying, well, okay, Stuart, well, do we have any evidence that there were households that were baptized? Okay, I mean, it, it, all I see in, in when, you know, people in Acts you know, they get baptized, it's just one person at a time, or maybe a whole lot of people at a time, but they're all believers. Is there any evidence, any evidence at all, that there is at least a household baptism? I'm glad you asked. Because, yeah, there are household baptisms. Now, can we prove that there were young kids in those households? No, we can't. Can we prove that there was not? No, we can't do that either. But what we can do is say, that fits the pattern. That fits the pattern of the Old Testament, that God cares not just for the adults who believe, but also for their children. And so in Acts 16, verses 14 through 15, we read, one who heard us, this is the apostles' teaching, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. 
And then one of my favorites, which is, again, in Acts chapter 16, verses 29 through 33, the, the, the scenario here is that Paul and Silas are in jail. They're in jail for preaching about Jesus. And then suddenly the doors to the jail cell open up because they're praying and singing. And the jailer comes in and he thinks, oh no, they're, they're, they're gone. They've left and, and I'm going to be killed for this. And he starts to think about suicide. And then it says in verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in trembling with fear and he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Notice the question. What must I do? Not what, not what anybody else must do. What must I do to be saved? He had saw the power of God and he was moved by it. And so he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if he had just stopped there. But he didn't. He went on to say, you and your household. It was almost as if Paul was saying, wait a second, you're not thinking about this correctly. The good news is not just for you, it's for you and your children. Not just for you, but you and your household. Because God cares about families, not just individuals. He cares about families. And so they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now that's part of the reason why we do what we do when we baptize children who have not yet believed, children of believers, because we believe that they're a part of the covenant family. We believe they're part of what God loves about the church is that we are family. And he wants us to raise our children in the ways of the Lord. That's one of the reasons why there are even commands in Scripture to children. Because they're included. They're not excluded. They're included in the promises. But the main thing about baptism that I want you to understand is this. The sign of baptism points away from itself to the greater reality found in Christ. All this other stuff that I've said, it's important, it's good, it, it, it's good for us to wrestle through and understand, but I'm going to tell you, this is where the money is, this is where the goodness is. The sign of baptism points away from itself to the greater reality found in Christ. Let me give you an illustration of this. All right. How many of you like Krispy Kreme donuts? Come on, let me see a raise. I know we're Presbyterian, but we can raise our hands on this one. I mean, it's Krispy Kreme we're talking about here. You ever driven by Krispy Kreme donuts and seen that hot donuts now sign and your mouth starts watering? And you think, man, what I wouldn't do for one of those warm mouth-watering, delectable, sacrifarious little morsels of deliciousness, right? I think all of us have been there. Now, what would happen if you drove up into the parking lot, you saw that Hot Donuts Now sign, and you started licking the sign? 
I mean, everybody around you would be like, come on, dude. That's not the donut. The sign points you to something else. That deliciousness that's inside the store, the donut, not the sign. And that's what baptism is about. It's not pointing to itself. It points away from itself to something better, something more beautiful, something more wonderful. As Peter says in Acts 2, verses 37, when they ask him, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what baptism is really about. It points us to Jesus. Baptism isn't something, so much something that we do to say something about us. Baptism is something God says to us. I know that's not a point that's on the screen, but I think that bears repeating. Baptism isn't so much as something we do to say something about ourselves as it is, it is something God is saying to us. And what is God saying to us through baptism? He's saying, do you want your sins washed away? Then look to Jesus. Look to the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead, and your sins will be washed away into the depths of the sea. Your sins will be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Your sins will be forgiven, and you will be cleansed from all unrighteousness. That is what baptism does. Not washing away your sins, but pointing away from itself to the one who can wash you clean. And that is true for the person who has believed and been baptized as well as the person who has not yet believed but has been baptized. As they look to their baptism, they're reminded only Jesus can wash away my sins. And if I want my sins forgiven, I need to believe in Jesus. I need to trust him. Now, um, I haven't said anything about the mode of baptism yet, and that's partly because, um, well, I think that's one of the least most important. Least most important. I don't think that's a real way to say things. I think it's one of the least important things that we can talk about when it comes to baptism. I know that some use the Greek, the Greek word baptizo, and they say it can only mean immersion. Here's what I would say to that argument. In Mark 1, 8, John the Baptist says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, and how did the Holy Spirit come? Was there a pool of Holy Spirit and they just kind of dunked everybody in? And then the Holy Spirit fell down from the sky, fell down upon them. It was poured out upon the people. And so you can't say that baptism only means that. It means a lot of different things. Yeah, the death and burial thing, that's a beautiful picture of baptism. But so is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that shows that the promise is for you. So both are really viable. Both. And the point of, but the point of baptism is not how wet one gets. The point of baptism is that water applied points away from itself 
points away from baptism and points to Jesus and says, Jesus is the only one who can save you. You can't do anything to save yourself. You can't do anything to get rid of your sin. Your sin problem is a problem that you can't solve on your own. Someone outside of you has to do it. And that someone is Jesus. I love this B.B. Warfield quote that kind of captures what I'm saying. He says, every time we baptize an infant, we bear witness that salvation is from God, that we cannot do any good thing to secure it, that we receive it from his hands as a sheer gift of his grace, and that we all enter the kingdom of heaven, therefore, as little children who do not do but are done for. It's not that we do something in order to be saved. It is that someone else has done something for us. And that someone is Jesus. Now, real quickly, having said all of this, I recognize that some of you may not be convinced. You know, some of you may still say, I'm still Baptist in my thinking, you, you haven't changed the thing, and that's okay. For me, it was about a nine-year process from the guy who wanted to stand up and say, that's not right, to actually being a guy who became a Presbyterian pastor and baptized his own children. I think there's room for wrestling with the scriptures together and not necessarily seeing things eye to eye all the time. That's why we pray for other churches besides Presbyterian ones. Like we prayed for Wise Drive Baptist today because we believe they're brothers and sisters in Christ. We believe that they believe the gospel. We believe that they're doing a good work. And even though we may have differences of opinion about how to interpret the scriptures on baptism, we still believe we're part of the same family. That's why we have a relationship with Jehovah Missionary Baptist. Baptist. A Baptist church that we do partnership with, we do ministry with, we have services together with. Why? Because we believe that they're brothers and sisters in Christ, and even though we have differences with them, we still come together and we say we serve the same Lord, the same Savior. So, so no matter what we believe about baptism, we can celebrate what we have in common. And here's what we have in common. If I haven't made it clear, Listen to this part and make sure you understand what I'm saying. Water cannot wash away your sins. Only Jesus can. Being immersed cannot wash away your sins. Only Jesus can. Sprinkling or pouring cannot wash away your sins. Only Jesus can. Undergoing a ritual in a church service like this one cannot wash away your sins. Only Jesus can do that. The blessing that a pastor gives at the end of a service or during a baptism cannot wash away our sins. Only Jesus can do that. Walking an aisle or standing in front of the church cannot wash away our sins. Only Jesus can do that. Taking membership vows cannot take away our sins. It can't wash away our sins. Only Jesus can do that. Having our names on the membership roll of the church cannot wash away our sins. Only Jesus can do that. When it comes to taking care of our sin problem, baptism can't do it. Worship services can't do it. 
praying can't do it. Even reading the Bible or being a good, upstanding citizen can't do it. Trying to do more good than bad can't do it. There's only one remedy for sin, and that is Jesus. And that's what we believe. That is why we apply the sign of baptism and say this baptism is a sign that points away to something better. And that better is Jesus. Now some of you are thinking, okay, Stuart, if you've been here before, you know that I do action points. And you're thinking, how are you going to do an action point on this? You're going to say, okay, everybody, let's get baptized. Now, seriously, I want you to do this. Remember, remember what baptism tells you. As we do this baptism in just a few minutes, remember what baptism tells you. If you've already, if you are a believer and you've been baptized, remember what baptism tells you. It tells you that if you want your sins washed away, you believe in Jesus. You trust in Him. And as Journey said, don't stop believing. Keep right on. If you have been baptized but you have not yet believed because you were a child of the covenant and you were baptized in a church like this and you haven't yet made a profession of faith, look, that baptism has marked you off to say, believe this. That's the, it's your only hope. Believe these promises. God gave you to those parents who gave you that mark so that you would know this good news of Jesus. So believe. And maybe you, maybe you are someone who has never been baptized and you don't believe. Well, as you watch this baptism, think about your own life and ask yourself, do I, do I have any sins in my life? Are there any problems in my life? Are there any issues where I know if I was to die today and I was to stand before God and God was to say, okay, what are you going to do? What have you done? Who are you? Why are you here? What would I say? If you don't have an answer to that question, man, today's a day to get that, that, that answer to that question right. Today is the day to believe that Jesus is your only hope. That you could stand before God and say, there is nothing in me that allows me to enter into your presence except for Jesus. And I am so thankful you gave him to me. That's what the good news is really all about. And there's one more category that I can't leave out. If you are a person who has believed, and yet you haven't been baptized, what are you waiting for? Why would you do that? I mean, not only did Jesus command us to be baptized, but think about what it means. It says you belong to the covenant. You belong to this church. You belong to this group of people, this group of people who love Jesus. And why wouldn't you want to say, yeah, I need to be baptized so that I too can be someone who represents among this group of people the truth that only Jesus can say. So that's your action point. Remember what baptism tells you. Let me pray for us. Father, as we get ready to um, recognize some new members and 
as we do a baptism, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us uh, truth, that you would work in each of our hearts, that where someone does not believe, that somehow in some mysterious way, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work to cause them to believe. And if we do already believe that we, our faith would be strengthened and we would recognize that our sins have been washed away because Jesus, you shed your blood for us at the cross. And then there's no other way to have our sins cleansed. And just take this time and use it for your glory and for our good and for the good of this community that we would really be salt and light, that we would represent you well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.